Welcome to the Jason Timph Podcast. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your day, as usual, to come hang out and talk some basketball with me. Um, I'm really excited for this week on Friday at, I believe, 11 o'clock California time. I have uh, Tommy coming on, and we're going to do a season preview. That's when I'll give most of my thoughts about who I think is going to win, uh, which conference, you know, which players I think are going to be you know, uh, set up for specific awards and, and just basically all of your typical prediction stuff for the NBA season. Like I said, Friday at about 11 o'clock for that one. Um, today, I'm going to be touching on this, this whole fiasco with James Harden. And then I'm going to be touching on this Kyrie thing with the media. And then a bunch of the stuff that LeBron talked about in his most recent podcast with RJ and Channing on that road uh, on the road tripping podcast. I thought he had a lot of interesting things to say, a lot of stuff that that we can really dive into. And then I had quite a few good questions um, that were asked at the uh, tweet that I sent out earlier today, which I'll respond to those as well. Um, but again, thank you guys for jumping uh, for jumping on and and uh, hanging out for a little bit. Um, let's get started with James Harden. So this. James Harden fiasco is similar but different to a lot of the different star power, um, you know, flexes in the player empowerment movement here in the last 10 years. It's similar in the sense that it's the same basic structure player with multiple years left on his contract decides that he no longer wants to play where he's playing uh, privately declares that he wants to be traded, doesn't really say much publicly and then privately releases a list of teams that he deems are, uh, you know, uh, satisfactory to him, uh, even though in this particular case, he doesn't have any leverage. And so what we've heard from Woj is that he wants to go to Brooklyn and we know that he wants to go to Philly. The big difference between this one and the ones that we've seen elsewhere are that Harden has made his own bed. And that's the hardest thing for me to try to sympathize with him on. And for the record, I am one of the biggest Harden detractors that you'll meet uh, on NBA Twitter or really anywhere that you go to talk basketball. I don't like the guy. I personally, I, I basketball is very sacred to me. Basketball has not, not just as a fan, not just as somebody who, want, who wants to watch the game, but basketball has done great things for me. It's paid for my school. It's, it's prevented me from having massive amounts of college debt. It's opened doors for me that, that have made my life easier. And I'm eternally grateful uh, for that. And James Harden bastardizes basketball. In my opinion, like I've said on many times before, I think he commits basketball blasphemy. He does things that hurt the health of the game. And I think it's good that he has failed as often as he has because it prevents the things that he has done from becoming mainstream. I never have hidden from that. So it's important for us to, you know, start from there so that everybody understands that where I come from and my individual bias in that regard. That said, even in, within that lens, I still think what James Harden is doing here is different from what these other stars have done. If you look at Kawhi Leonard, you know, that's the team he was drafted by. And, you know, he never really had a chance to be a free agent and choose where he wanted to go. He didn't like his role on that particular team. He didn't like the way the team was managing his injury. Even with Paul George, same exact thing. He had a private agreement with the uh, upper management of Oklahoma City. Like, hey, I'm going to resign here. But if I don't like it, uh, like, let's work something out with the trade. And, and the OKC front office agreed with him on that. James Harden willingly signed his future into, uh, into the Houston Rockets organization at an extremely high salary. 
and he willingly uh, committed to them. There was no expectation that he would want out in the middle of the contract. In addition to that, he has dictated the vast majority of their player movement uh, um, decisions over the last few years. It was him that decided that CP3 wasn't a good fit. It was him who publicly went into a press conference after that season and said, I know what we need to fix. We need to, and basically subtly hinted at, not so subtly hinted at the fact that he wanted uh, Chris Paul out of there. We now have heard after the fact that, uh, you know, through back channels that Russell Westbrook was not happy with what he had going on in, uh, uh, in Houston. James Harden has made his own bed. And so from that, it, it, from that standpoint, it's really difficult to sympathize with his plight. So if I'm Houston, I'm sitting there and I'm saying, I've got him under contract for two years. And, you know, that third year is a player option that is such a massive number that regardless of where James Harden ends up, there's actually a pretty good chance that he ends up accepting that player option, especially given what we know with the stuff with China and the stuff with COVID and the way it's impacted, the way the salary cap has gone up each year, uh, uh, potentially moving forward. So the reality is, is James Harden has no leverage and he's just throwing a hissy fit because he doesn't like the bed that he made for himself. And so from that standpoint, like... <clears throat> I said this on Twitter the other day, you know, I feel a great deal of vindication from the last few years watching the way in which James Harden performed in the playoffs and the way in which his team fell short because it justified the way I felt about him as a basketball player. My basketball related takes about James Harden were proven to be right based on those results. But this incident is an example of, it's vindication for the people who didn't like the kind of guy that James Harden was. The reality is, is the reason why he plays basketball the way he does is because of his personality. He is a guy that cares more about himself than the team. He is a guy that cares more about his own personal experience as a member of the Houston Rockets rather than that ultimate team goal. Now, he's so good that he nearly accomplished the team goal. I'm not trying to undercut his basketball successes, I'm just saying it's, 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 it's been refreshing for all of us who suspected that this was the kind of guy he is to see, you know, the comparison between the way he's handled this and the way that Russell Westbrook has handled this or the way that CP3 has handled this or the way that all of these other stars who have been put into circumstances that are less than ideal, the way that they've chosen to handle their circumstance. And I think, I think that, you know, I'm a big believer that people inevitably will tell on themselves. I think that if you're a certain type of person you can put forward a, an image for a certain amount of time, but inevitably you're going to reveal who you really are. And that's what James Harden is doing right now. Uh, uh, but again, like that, that, that's just my opinion on the actual Harden saga in and of itself. The reality is, is James Harden is a top 10 player in the NBA. I think, he, I, think I put him at eight in my list. So I had him above Jokic and um, Dame, I believe, at nine and 10. And so the reality is, is here's a top 10 player in the NBA who realistically can be had in a trade this season. And so it's time if you're one of those teams who has never really uh, had an opportunity to sign a star. If you're one of those teams that when big free agent money is available and big free agent classes are available, you're incapable of signing those players. Uh, this is the kind of guy that can be had. And so too, I think there's too much talk surrounding Brooklyn and Philadelphia as the inevitable trade destinations for James Harden, ignoring the fact that Houston's going to trade James. If, if you know anything about Tillman Fertitta, if you know anything about this new general manager that's in the situation who would probably like to start fresh, 
they're not beholden to trade James Harden anywhere. They can trade him wherever they want to trade him, especially considering the fact that he's tied up for two, probably three years. So from that standpoint, you've got to learn from the history of the NBA in the sense that risks are the only way to eventually accomplish your ultimate goal. And our last two champions are the best example of that. The Los Angeles Lakers traded away a great deal of draft control. The Los Angeles Lakers traded away almost all of their young talent. The Los Angeles Lakers traded all of that away for a player who had missed the playoffs five of the previous seven years, who had had some injury concerns, and, you know, just in general was, uh, oh, he was only locked up for one year. He, uh, he only had one year remaining on his contract before a player option. So there was a risk. The Los Angeles Lakers took a risk trading for Anthony Davis. And it paid off because what we've learned about NBA history, throughout NBA history is if you can put multiple, you know, top 10 NBA players on the same team, you have a chance to win an NBA championship. And that's what happened. Go back a year further. Here we have Toronto. It's an even crazier risk when you factor in Kawhi's situation. He hadn't played basketball in over a year. He was dealing with what a lot of people thought was a degenerative knee issue. He was dealing with, you know, Popovich and a lot of his teammates saying he was a bad leader in the public. That, that, that uh, uh, Kawhi Leonard situation was a much worse situation than the Anthony Davis situation. It was a much bigger risk than the, uh, the Anthony Davis trade. And Toronto pulled the trigger anyway. And it, I mean, now in retrospect, we can parse out whether or not San Antonio got hosed in that deal. And I think we can all agree that they definitely did. But the reality is, is they could have lost Kawhi Leonard for nothing the following summer. Kawhi Leonard could have come in and gotten hurt again. Kawhi Leonard could have come in and been like, hey, my knee is still messed up. I think I'm just going to sit out for the entire season and then blame it on an injury. Or he could have been healthy and just pulled a straight up boycott like he threatened to at one point in the media. I can't remember whether it was his uncle or his agent, but he basically privately threatened, hey, if you don't trade me to L.A., I might sit out this season. So the point being is Toronto took a big risk in going after Kawhi Leonard and it paid off in them winning an NBA championship. So your last two NBA champions are teams that took significant risks and it ended up paying off in them winning a title. Now, that also comes with another side of the coin. That means you can very well trade for that guy, and it might not work out. But my question for you, if you're in that fringe contender list, and the, and the list that I put out today was Denver, you know, Toronto, Philly, teams like that that are, you know, they're really, really good, but they're not good enough to beat the Lakers. They're not good enough to beat, you know, the other top-tier teams around the league. The reality is, is, you're probably going to lose with whoever your core is right now anyway. So you have to ask yourself, would I rather lose by pushing all my chips into the middle and taking a legitimate, you know, potential path to a title that may, may go off the rails, but maybe it doesn't, maybe we get to hoist the trophy. Or do you stick with the status quo with a team that you know, isn't enough to beat the more talented teams in the league, but, you know, maintain your culture, all those things that you keep telling yourself as the reason why you won't go after James Harden. And so from that same point, like if I was one of those fringe contenders, if I was one of those teams that had a lot of talent and, you know, wasn't really going anywhere these last few years, I would be, I would be more, I would be looking really, really hard at what I have and whether or not this is feasible. And I would throw something at James Harden because he's locked up under contract for, like I said, probably three years. 
if you look at that massive, I think it's almost $50 million he's going to get paid in that third year. I'm guessing he's going to take that option. So the reality is you could lock up James Harden long-term and give yourself a legitimate chance to win a title. And if it goes poorly, if he comes in and tries to ruin your culture, you get to trade him again. You can trade him again after this season. He's going to have just as much value with one year left on his deal as he does with two, le- two years left on his deal. Somebody's going to want him. I think, it's a, I think it's a risk that somebody out there needs to take. <clears throat> and the reality is, like I said, you're not winning a title unless you take some kind of risk. So whether it's, you know, uh, whether it's Denver trying to throw Jamal Murray, because like if you swap Jamal Murray for, for James Harden and, you know, give up Michael Porter Jr., yeah, you're giving up some young talent. You know, Jamal Murray, Jamal Murray is, is, a, is a star level player who is locked up under contract. It's the kind of thing that Houston has been asking for. You give up some draft picks, you give up Michael Porter Jr. Sounds like a lot, but now I've got Jokic and Harden on the same team. Now I've got two of the most versatile, skilled, uh, you know, offensive creators in the league on the same team. That's something. That's something that I can build around. That's something that has a legitimate chance to win a title. You know, but it, it's a risk. You could potentially ruin your culture. You could potentially set yourself up for failure. But the, tr- the truth of the matter is, ask yourself, if you're a Nuggets fan, am I winning a title with Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic? And the answer is probably not, unless there is catastrophic injuries to several teams in the league. So those are the kinds of risks that I'm talking about that I think teams need to at least look at uh, as it pertains to James Harden. All righty, we're going to talk about Kyrie here in a second. So, um, Kyrie Irving came out a couple days ago, <clears throat> released a statement, basically said, you know, because of this incident recently where I feel like the media has been twisting my words, I'm going to be releasing a statement to convey, you know, my thoughts on this season. And it was very, you know, like uh, 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 even kosher and very safe, very safe statement. Then that same day, Brian Windhorst comes out and says, Kyrie has made it clear that he's not talking to the media this year. And as is usually the case, Kyrie kind of reminds me a little bit of LeVar Ball. Not the same kind of guy. They're totally different stories, but it's a similar dynamic in terms of the intellectual conversations surrounding the two guys in that they have undisputed success. LeVar Ball has put three kids in the NBA. One of them, we'll see if he actually makes the opening day roster, but he's put three kids in the NBA. Three kids have signed NBA contracts. Like that's undeniable success. His brand, I'm not, I'm not sure how Big Baller Brand is doing anymore, but I'm sure he's made a great deal of money. LeVar Ball is a success story. And a lot of times that is used to cover up the fact that he's done a lot of stuff that I don't think is okay morally. I think he's, you know, he's, he's, there's been some examples of misogyny. There's been some examples of, I, in my opinion, taking you know, the spotlight off of his children in a way that I didn't think was uh, necessarily the right thing to do. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, like, I, I wish people were more honest in when they were talking about LeVar Ball to cover both sides. Yes, he was a success story. He also did some stuff that I think isn't right. I think that should be the way that we discuss this stuff. Kyrie kind of falls into that same boat. He's an undisputed success story. He's got a, a Nike shoe deal. As LeBron was saying in that road tripping podcast, a Nike shoe deal is nothing to slouch at. It's an extremely uncommon thing that Nike gives out. Not only does he have a Nike shoe deal, his shoe deal is doing, it's, his shoe is performing extremely well. Kyrie's are one of the most popular basketball shoes out there. Although, funny side story, for whatever reason, I've never owned a pair of Kyrie's. Don't have any idea why. It just is kind of, you know, by happenstance. But anyway, the point is, is, you know, he's doing very well in that department. He's one of the best ball handlers in the history of the league, if not the best. He's hit arguably the biggest shot in NBA history. 
Kyrie Irving is an NBA success story, but because of his incessant, you know, flapping of the gums and not thinking about what he says before he talks on various occasions throughout his career, he's put his foot in his mouth and he's done stuff that has made him look bad. And in addition to that, he has absolutely flat out unequivocally been a bad teammate in several instances. Not always. He's been a good teammate sometimes, but he's his, you know, his personality is flaky and it's kind of an emotional roller coaster in the respect that on any given uh, situation, if he goes into one of his, you know, moody seasons, like he can pull away from the team. He can make questionable comments to the press. He can, you know, do things that fracture the chemistry and culture of a locker room. That is a fact about Kyrie. And it bothers me that with Kyrie, we can't have that honesty and just focus on the good and the bad. You know, I would like to think that if, if a couple of my friends, for whatever reason, sat down and had an honest conversation about me, they could sit and talk about the things that they like about me, and they could sit and talk about the things that I do that they disagree with for whatever reason. You know, that, that, that's a normal part of human conversation. No one's perfect. Everybody brings things to the table that are positives. Everybody brings things to the tables that are negative. And, and the reality is, is that Kyrie Irving has made some mistakes in his career. And so that's what bothers me so much about this most recent saga, because one of my biggest pet peeves is people who think they're above the struggle. The reality is, is everybody experiences some amount of struggle. It's not equal. Some people experience more struggle. Some people experience less struggle. Not really going to dive into that. But it bothers me when people think they're above that in their particular path in life that they chose. Being an NBA player is awesome. You get lots of money. You get lots of fame. You get to literally play a game for a living. You get to do all of these things that, that, that seem like a dream existence for all of us working folk out there who are you know, doing a lot less fun thing for a living. But the truth of the matter is, an NBA player's life is not all perfect. It comes with downsides. You know, it comes with Ricky Rubio getting traded. You know, uh, 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 he signs a multi-year deal with Phoenix, wants to settle his family there, and bam, they ship him off to OKC, who bam, shifts him off to, to, to Minnesota. That's a negative part of the NBA player experience. You know, there's wear and tear on your body. There's risk of injury. There's, you know, uh, most NBA players uh, end up dealing with joint problems when they're older. There's a lot of downsides to choosing this path in life. And one of them is the the intricate relationship between the NBA media and the NBA player. The reality is, is that the NBA media is part of what makes the NBA a cash cow. The reason why the NBA generates so much revenue is because of the power of their stars. And their stars have a great deal of power because they're marketed so well. And they are marketed so well as a combination of the media and just their on-court performance. But the media is part of that experience. And so I'm I'm not an expert on the way the player contract works. But as far as I know, I'm pretty sure there are are, uh, uh, there's terminology in the contract that requires these players to communicate with the media. Why? Because the NBA knows that they need Kyrie Irving's face in interviews on camera, doing these sorts of things to try to be uh, uh, to try to expand his profile and make himself a, a larger figure in the NBA landscape. And so from that standpoint, it bothers me that Kyrie Irving thinks he's above that. And the reality is, is it comes with a downside. Every single NBA player in the entire league, at least stars, have had something they said or something they did covered unfairly by the media. 
It has literally happened to every single star. Kyrie is not unique in that regard. He's had some recent instances that are not really fair. But the truth of the matter is, that's part of the NBA player experience. Because in the same way that NBA players are not perfect, in the same way that Kyrie Irving has made mistakes in his career, the NBA media is not perfect. And they have made mistakes in their careers. And while there are some guys in the NBA that, you know, make dirty plays or, or have bad attitudes and, and fracture locker rooms and all the different bad things that they can do, it's also possible for a journalist who works in the NBA to misrepresent a statement or to flat out lie in some cases. But you do the same thing that every other NBA player does when that stuff happens. You refute it and you tell them why they're wrong and you defend yourself. And then you understand that for the most part, 90 plus percent of the time, when you say stuff, the NBA will, the NBA media will treat you fairly. That struggle that Kyrie has experienced is the same struggle that every other NBA star deals with with the NBA media. So that's what I don't like in his, you know, insistence on feeling like he's above that. And so, you know what? Go ahead. If you want to skip on press conferences, if you want to release statements and do it that way, that's fine. I just think the NBA is well within their rights to, you know, find him to find some way to to try to hold him to his player contract. It's a similar thing to the James Harden thing. James Harden can hold out all he wants. James Harden can uh, miss training camp all he wants. The reality is, though, per the contract, there's recourse, and I think the teams are well within their rights to find them and to do whatever it takes to get them to stick to their original agreement per the contract. That's just part of being a grown-up. It's literally part of how a life works. And, I, and, it, and it just, it, like I said, it's just I'm not – not cool with him being viewed as above that. And, you know, what's funny is the NBA media relationship, there's, all of, there's always a focus on the examples where a player says something and it's misrepresented. But we always just forget about the times when the NBA media says something through good reporting and then the player denies it publicly and then time ends up showing that the original reporting was correct. How many times in NBA history have you seen star A request a trade? You know, journalist reports it, you know, whoever it is that reports it. Star A then immediately goes on a social media account, denies it. And then all of a sudden we find out it's true. Or it's abundantly clear to all of us who are watching the situation like, oh, these two guys don't like each other. Report comes out. These two guys don't like each other. These two guys then go on their social media and go, we are brothers. We love each other. And the next thing you know, they get traded away from each other and they look way happier when they're not around each other. So that relationship goes both ways. Players lie. Players are dishonest. That's just part of that dynamic. If, if you know, the media is always going to be an imperfect system and, and, and no one is immune to that struggle, like I was saying earlier. All right, we're going to talk about LeBron's podcast uh, with – RJ and Shanning on the Road Tripping Podcast. Alrighty, so <clears throat> there was all sorts of good stuff in that LeBron podcast with RJ and Shanning. That's what happens when you get some tequila flowing, and that's what happens when you get guys like RJ and Shanning who are, you know, very they don't take themselves seriously. They're very uh, um, uh, easygoing, relaxed, funny, you know, lighthearted. That sort of thing, that sort of thing always finds a way to uh, get people around them to kind of meet them at their level. It's a, it's contagious. I've always people are contagious. If you spend time around people who are who are condescending and rude and talk a bunch of shit, 
chances are you're going to like eventually kind of delve into that a little bit yourself. Spend time around people who are really happy. It, it will it will inevitably rub rub off on you. That's what happens with RJ and Shannon. You get you get into a room with those guys, and these stars just lighten up. They become the funny, free flowing, you know, locker room version of themselves, and then all this good stuff comes out. And it led to a lot of good stuff from uh, from LeBron. But I want to start with the Kyrie comments because I think it's actually super interesting. And I'm going to call LeBron out on a little bit of hypocrisy here because LeBron goes on this long spiel where he basically says that. You know, Kyrie uh, uh, made his comment saying that Ke- uh, Kevin Durant was the first player he played with who he trusted to make a last second shot. So LeBron says that he wants to find the full transcript to find out exactly what he says. And then he calls his people and then he finds out that it's, it is as bad as it sounds. And then he goes, damn, I was really upset. It hurt me a little bit. I can't believe that, you know, all I did was try to help Kyrie and lift him up. And, and this is the way he's treating me now. And then later on in the same podcast, he basically did the same thing to Giannis. And I know they're not teammates, but the point is, is like, it's, it was a little bit of hypocrisy in my opinion. So Giannis just got done a, an interview in Greece where he's saying LeBron's praises like we've never seen, calling him the best player in the world, calling him the, the player he'd most likely w- uh, want to win MVP if he didn't win it. A guy he roots for, a guy he looks up to, a guy he looked up to a lot when he was younger. Giannis just absolutely just showered LeBron with love in that interview with Greece. And then in his podcast with RJ and Shanning, he goes out of his way to basically defend Shanning Fry by, for saying that Giannis can't score. And, and the reality is, it's like, I agree. Giannis can't score, at least in the context of what Shanning was trying to say, which is, uh, which is playoff half court scoring, which is extremely difficult. And Giannis definitely has a weakness there. But the point is, is LeBron went public with the fact that he believes that Giannis can't score, or at least he understands what Channing was trying to say when he was saying that. So my point is, is like, you can't really necessarily get mad at Kyrie for saying something that bothered you, uh, you know, uh, that you thought was disrespectful and inaccurate. And then you kind of turn around and go do the same thing to Giannis. You know, that, that, that's the hypocrisy in that regard. But again, that's like, that's, that's part of that uh, uh, NBA media relationship. Players make mistakes too. You know, like LeBron is the kind of guy he says, I found it uninterrupted to make sure that my words don't get, you know, parsed out and, and taken out of context and all this stuff. But the truth is, is like LeBron, sometimes you contradict yourself, too. That's part of the game. No one's perfect, but like it, it, go, it goes both ways. That's part of that relationship. You know, you're not perfect. You know, Dave McMenamin's not perfect. Brian Windhorst is not perfect. Adrian Wojnarowski is not perfect. Those guys are going to make mistakes. That's part of that relationship. You guys all need each other. The players in the media need each other for the league to succeed. All right. So the last one, the, uh, there's obviously so much to talk about from that podcast, but the last one I really want to touch on is this Katie and Steph thing. So RJ basically brings up the Katie LeBron relationship. The fact that there's a lot of mutual respect there and the fact that the two of them, you know, push each other in a similar way to the way that magic and Larry bird pushed each other. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen this brought up. This was originally brought up by LeBron and KD themselves, I believe, in the fall of 2017. No, it was All-Star break 2000, uh, in that 2017-2018 season. So uh, Kevin Durant had just won his first title with the Warriors. And in the All-Star break, LeBron and Kevin Durant went on a taxi ride with Kerry Champion. And in this taxi ride... LeBron and KD basically were talking with each other and Gary Champion about the fact that they viewed themselves as the two best players in the league in a tier by themselves. Now, part of this, I think, is, you know, positional similarities 
you know, LeBron and KD are both small forwards. LeBron and KD are both like, you know, versatile basketball players. LeBron and KD are, have faced off in the finals at that point twice. There's a lot of mutual respect there. But the truth of the matter is, and this is something that has bothered me for a long time about the, uh, uh, about the KD move to Golden State, is that KD's claim to that tier with LeBron is flawed, and there's actually a player that has a much better case to be in that tier, and that's Steph Curry. You know, there's a tweet that I sent out a long time ago that kind of encapsulated this. But, you know, in 2015 and 16, there were two players who were clearly better than everyone else in the league. It was LeBron and Steph Curry. And they were both on teams that were, you know, reasonably similar levels of talent. Uh, Golden State, I thought, had a little more talent in that 2016 year just because Kevin Durant, uh, Kevin Love wasn't playing super well. But Kevin Durant also had a very good team in that year. Uh, him and uh, Russell Westbrook was peaking as an athlete and uh, um, entering his mental prime as well. And Serge Baca was on that team as a shot blocker. Steven, uh, Steven Adams on, was on that team. There's a lot of athleticism. And they really overwhelmed Golden State in their, athletically and defensively in the 2016 Western Conference Finals. But the point is, is that all three of those guys, LeBron, Steph, and KD, were on the similar level with similar level teams pursuing the similar goal. And there was a clear result. Steph beat KD, and then LeBron beat Steph. The hierarchy was very clear. You know, LeBron is clearly the best player in the league. Steph is right there behind him, and KD is right there behind Steph. But then KD decides to leave the Thunder and go to Golden State, which inevitably led to success. You know, uh, there, there was no conceivable method for that team to lose with the amount of talent that they had and with how bought in they were to start that season. They absolutely obliterated everybody they played all season long. And yet, for whatever reason, after that season, we landed at Kevin Durant and LeBron at the t- top tier of the league. We landed at Kevin Durant outplayed LeBron in the 2017 finals. We landed at this concept that Kevin Durant had somehow leapfrogged possibly both, if not just Steph, to that top tier of the league. And to me, that was always illogical. It didn't make any sense to me to begin with. You know, my favorite example is just the efficiency numbers that you look at. Kevin Durant is frequently called the greatest scorer in NBA history by a lot of people. Not something I agree with. I think that guy's MJ. But, you know, he's a guy who gets a lot of credit as a scorer. But you look at 2016... Kevin Durant's efficiency was tanking. Why? Because he was the focus of the defense. Anytime Kevin Durant was dribbling with the basketball or running around off the basketball, the defense was keyed around stopping Kevin Durant. And it led to his efficiency tanking. When he went to go play with Steph, every team strategically you know, directed their defense towards stopping Steph. And it left KD in single coverage almost every single time he had the basketball. And as a result, his efficiency went way, way up. If I'm not mistaken, he went, it, was something, it was over double digits. He went up like 16% in effective field goal percentage from 2016 to 2017 in the playoffs. There's some absurd number like that. That is the, the natural progression of things when you go from playing with a traditional contender to joining a team that is already a traditional contender as the third or fourth best player in the league or whatever you think Kevin Durant was at that point. And it always, it's been one of the most confusing things that I've seen in terms of, you know, honest basketball discourse in the last decade. Steph earned the right to be the guy who's measured against LeBron. Steph earned that right for a long time, for several years, with flawed rosters. 
with teams that weren't your traditional juggernaut contender. They're, they're, LeBron and Steph Curry are the only two players that belong in that conversation. Kevin Durant might belong in that conversation, but it's based on you know subjectivity or whatever your aesthetic thing is that you love about Kevin Durant. None of it ever really made sense you know, logically. None of it ever really made sense in the results and the stuff that we were actually seeing on the court. And so I feel, I feel bad for Steph in that regard. And honestly, like I'm confused by LeBron's methodology there because if your case is that, you know, you're better than Steph or that or if your case is that the 2016 finals is the greatest accomplishment in NBA history. And if your case is that, you know, you lost because Kevin Durant joined that team, then your case needs to be that Steph Curry's that guy. Your Steph, your case needs to be that Steph Curry is the guy who is at your level because it lifts up your accomplishment in 2016. It doesn't make sense to marginalize Steph because it takes some of the gloss off of your accomplishment in that 2016 Finals comeback with the Cavs into uh, with the Cavs in, in that three uh, one comeback. I, j- I just don't understand the methodology of it. If I was a uh, um, if I was LeBron, I would be talking all about how great Steph is because that's the guy that is your pathway to, you know, solidifying your hold on the GOAT debate. You know, I, I played Steph Curry. who was a bona fide top 10 player all time at the absolute peak of his powers in an, und- in an undisputed MVP season, and I beat him. That's the guy that you need to, 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 uh, to cling to. And, I, you know, I went at length uh, in, the, in my player hierarchy pod a couple weeks ago about why I think KD is behind Steph. And it all just stems from the similar stuff that I've talked about, you know, with aesthetics being overvalued. You know, Kevin Durant makes it look so easy when he scores that people ignore the results, which are that every season that Kevin Durant played away from Steph, you know, he was less efficient. And when push came to shove in late round playoff series, he couldn't get in, he couldn't do enough to get his team over the top, even though he spent his entire career playing with perennial MVP candidates. And, you know, it's so from that standpoint, I've never really, I've never really understood, you know, why a guy who has bona fide results-based evidence that he is better than KD in Steph and why that always gets put on the back burner. Alrighty. So I'm going to look real quick at our questions that we have. I wrote a few of them down uh, that I want to respond to and I'm going to see if any new ones popped up. And we have one from the, uh, um, the live comments here. Uh, do you think Harden gets dealt before the season starts? I do. My guess is that he ends up in Philly. Um, that's where my that's what my gut tells me. I think the trade makes, you know, I think the trade makes absolute sense. I think Daryl Morey is a really smart guy. I think Daryl Morey is cutthroat. I don't think Daryl Morey is scared to hurt any feelings. And I know Daryl Morey, deep in his heart of hearts, knows damn well that James Harden is a much much better basketball player than Ben Simmons. I like Ben Simmons. He's a good player. He's probably like. I'd probably have him around 16 or 17 in the league. But the truth of the matter is, is, you know, James Harden is a bona fide top 10 player who is, has famously in his career always stayed healthy. He is, he's like a, you know, a little bit of a, a, a you know, an Iron Man in that regard. It's, and, and it's also a much better complementary piece with Joel Embiid. You know, instead of having two players that operate in the paint who cause major problems for spacing, why not swap one of those spacing concerns for a player like James Harden Who's a you know bona fide clear uh, uh, fit with Joel Embiid, and, and it just makes a lot more sense. And so I think I think you'll end up seeing. I think uh, uh, if I think if Philly was patient, they could get James Harden for just Ben Simmons. I just think that 
I'm a big believer in continuity. I'm a big believer in training camp mattering. I'm a big believer in, you know, getting lots and lots of reps with your guys so that when they get to the postseason, they know how to play together. I think the smart tactical move is if you're going to go after James Harden, go after him now, even if you have to overpay a little bit because you're better off getting a veteran minimum, you know, uh, uh, buyout guy to fill out whatever other pieces you have to lose and, and give James Harden and, and, and Joel Embiid as many reps as possible to learn how to play together. And I'm also a big believer in James Harden as a winner. If you surround him with all the guys you can make up for his shortcomings. If you put James Harden around a really, really good defensive team, if you put James Harden around an alpha who can go toe to toe with other stars, which I really believe Joel Embiid is just like CP three was. And if you give him enough shooting, I think James Harden can succeed. Joel Embiid is that alpha. You know, uh, uh, if they if they surround uh, with you know Matisse Thybulle and with Joel Embiid, you could that's the and Tobias Harris. That's the core of a good NBA defense. Uh, if you get James Harden to buy in in that regard, and as long as Seth Curry you know remains a serviceable defensive player, you could have a team there with pretty good spacing because Tobias can shoot because Seth Curry can shoot. It, you it, and you have the 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 good like yin, yin and yang with with Embiid and Harden that makes sense. And then you've got Embiid's alpha mentality to make up for when Harden can kind of fade late in postseason games as he has a tendency to. Will the league find Harden for his behavior? Are they even able to? So from what I understand, and again, I'm not an expert in this stuff. From what I understand, this falls to the team. So the league uh, uh, doesn't necessarily have recourse here. However, the player contract with the team gives the team the ability to fine a player for not showing up to practice or to suspend a player for not showing up to practice. But there's another side of that coin. And I believe it was Zach Lowe that talked about this in his pod the other day. There is a fear that exists between, you know, teams and the agent pool that if you punish a star player for misconduct, it might scare other stars away. And I heard that today when I was, I was actually today when I was listening to the pod and I actually, I kind of disagree with that ideology. You know, I would feel confident if I was a general manager and I had to find James Harden for not showing up to practice, I would feel confident that in a free agent class in the future, that if I had, you know, Bradley Beal sit down at a table with me, and he was like, all right, tell me why I should come to Houston. You know, what the heck happened when you find James Harden? I'd look Bradley in the face and I'd say, look, man, I'm trying to run a tight ship here. You know, I, I, I'm a believer that, you know, in this organization, we have accountability. And it's my opinion that by setting that culture, it makes our team better. You know, by showing that no one is immune to, to you, know, uh, you know, disobeying the rules of our team, I, I'm setting a culture that will lead to good things for the team in the future. And you know what? If Bradley Beal looks back at me in that situation and he goes, uh, like, well, I don't want to be a part of something like that where you're not going to have my back, then, you know, maybe that's not the kind of star that I want. The truth of the matter is, is that this is a guy who is blatantly violating his player contract. And any sort of punishment that you lever- levy on him is not a sign of weakness, in my, in my opinion. It's a sign of strength. And the kind of guys you're going to turn away who might be offended by that aren't the kind of guys that I want to be in my organization anyway. And I'm not saying you have to make some big public thing. Maybe it's private. But you, 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 you punish James Harden for disobeying his player contract. 
You know why? So that if you, the 10th man on the bench, you know, sleeps in and skips practice someday during the season and you have to find him, you don't have him like sulking in the corner and, or going to the press or doing something to complain about how he doesn't obey the, doesn't have to, uh, you know, follow the same rules that James Harden does. And that, that's the tightrope that you walk when you start giving special treatment to players. All right, let's look at what, what other questions we have here. How excited are you to see LeBron play more off the ball this season with Dennis and Gasol being able to initiate the offense? So I talked about this a lot with the Clippers last year. I, I hope that things still stay with LeBron on ball as much as possible. And the reason for that is, is that I'm a big believer in rhythm and flow. And I'm a big believer that, you know, with exception of fatigue related, uh, you know, passivity, you need to keep the ball in the, the hands of your best players as much as you can. You know, when LeBron is on the bench, when LeBron is on the court and resting, you know, as he likes to do, especially when he, you know, starts to step up his minutes. I'm a big believer that, you know, you want to put the ball in someone else's hands because he can, because LeBron can spot up shoot, because LeBron can cut, because LeBron can do the stuff off the ball. But when LeBron's feeling good and when LeBron's on the court, you need to run the, run, run the offense through him as much as possible because he's the second or first or second best player ever. And he's the best player in the world. And you're, you're doing your team a disservice if you don't have him be aggressive, you know, so I, I'm excited for what Dennis can do in the second unit. I'm excited for what Marc Gasol can do as a high IQ off ball player. But the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, uh, uh, those guys don't need to be taking your uh, too many of the touches away from LeBron and Anthony Davis. They need to, they need to remain aggressive. Of the teams that made a deeper playoff run in the bubble, do you think there's any team that may have actually benefited from the short turnaround? So the one to look at for me would be Boston. Um, uh, the reason why is because Kemba is going to be sitting out anyway with the, the uh, stem cell injection that he got in his kneecap. So from that standpoint, like your only real veteran player on the roster is resting. Your other old guy on the roster, Gordon Hayward, has been shipped off. Um, and Tristan Thompson, the guy you brought in to play center, is uh, uh, has had a ton of time off. And uh, uh, Jeff Teague has also had a ton of time off. So your starting lineup, Teague, Marcus Smart, Jason, Jason Tatum, and, and uh, uh, um, Jalen Brown and Tristan Thompson are all either young guys who are capable of having a quick turnaround because of their youth or guys who have had a lot of time off. So Boston is a team that I think has a good chance to come in and attack the season early on and have a lot of success early. The, the teams that are going to struggle early are going to be your older veteran teams that take distance from basketball in the short break. You know, a lot of teams, you've heard a lot of talk from Clippers players, Lakers players. I've heard it from a lot of like veteran players that, you know, they stopped dribbling a basketball and just for their own mental health, just got away from the game over the, these last two months. And I think those guys are smart to have done that. And I think that those, the, uh, it will hurt them in the short term. You're going to see teams like that suffer some early season losses to more zealous teams, to more, you know, uh, uh, you know, to higher effort teams, younger teams early in the season, but it'll benefit them in the long run. And then teams that like Boston who have young talent and influx of newer players that haven't been dealing with the bubble turnaround, those are the teams that are going to have some success early in the season and jump to the top of the standings. Don't be surprised if Boston is the one seed you know, uh, 10, 15 games through the season. All right, let's see what else we got. All right, this is the last one I'm going to do. Dark Horse MVP candidate 
and Dark Horse Championship contender. So I haven't dug too much into my MVP stuff. I'm going to be doing that on Friday, so I'm going to leave that one. But I really do think that Philly is an interesting Dark Horse Championship contender. The idea there is if they make a trade for James Harden. And I know I'm down on James Harden, but I do believe that there is an opportunity in the Eastern Conference because of the lack of high-end talent. You know, there is high-end talent there now with the influx of Kevin Durant and and James Harden in this theoretical situation where he gets traded to Philly. But the Eastern Conference is being duked out by Jimmy Butler, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Jason Tatum, really flawed stars. Stars that, you know, Giannis Antetokounmpo, I think, is the sixth best player in the league, but he has some big holes in his game that make him a less, you know, imposing playoff player. And then Jimmy Butler is kind of the opposite of that. He's not that talented of a player, but he has so much playoff experience that he brings a lot to the table in that regard. So from that standpoint, you know, there's, there's an opening in the East for a, a, an alpha-type personality to step in and have a lot of success. There's an opening in the East for someone to do what LeBron did in 2018, is what I'm saying. And I have my doubts about Brooklyn, strictly stemming from KD's health, Kyrie's health, the weird personality mix in that locker room, the lack of guys who do dirty work, the lack of your traditional championship-level role players in that roster. Philly's already got all of that. Seth Curry is an awesome two-guard, one of the highest percentage three-point shooters in the league, a really, really solid role player to put along two, two stars. Tobias Harris is massively overpaid, but he's a really good player. He's massively overpaid, but when he's your third best guy, that kind of works. And then Joel Embiid on any given night can be the best player in the world. And so James Harden is, is kind of in the perfect situation there to vault a flawed team that's a middle-of-the-pack Eastern Conference team into a team that could just as easily win that conference. James Harden can go toe-to-toe with any of those other stars in that conference, except for maybe KD, and can beat them. And his, the supporting cast around James Harden in Philly under those circumstances is better than the supporting cast that Kevin Durant would have in Brooklyn. And I think if it push came to shove and you had a Philly-Brooklyn conference final or a Philly-Brooklyn showdown that would lead to the team that would inevitably win the East, I think James Harden can come out on top of that matchup. Then in the NBA Finals, anything can happen. It's about injuries. It's about fatigue. It's a war of attrition. You know, look at last year with, uh, uh, you know, Miami brings it to 2-1. And if you guys remember, uh, uh, in the, I think it was in the closeout game in th- when it was 3-1. But Anthony Davis, you know, looked there for a second like he might have tore his Achilles. Now, he didn't. He was fine in the, in, the, in the Lakers won. But the truth of the matter is, like, something like that happens. And, you know, I... I think LeBron still would have beat Miami, but who knows? Anything could happen. An injury like that could swing things. You know, and a lot of times injuries happen in previous rounds and then they drag on and then fatigue can play a role. So if you're James Harden and you can get to, if you can get to Philly in that amazing supporting cast there in Philly, all it is is you got to knock out Kevin Durant. If you do, you've got the best team. You're going to get it to the, you're going to get to the finals. And then who knows? You know, the two LE teams beat the shit out of each other. LeBron's fatigued. LeBron's hurt. Who knows what the deal is there? But there's an opportunity there. And so my dark horse championship contender is Philly under the circumstance where they can trade for James Harden. All righty, that's all I have for today, guys. Uh, Like I said, Friday, 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. We're going to be doing the season preview with Tommy. 
Um, I know a lot of you guys get annoyed because he can be an anti-LeBron guy sometimes. But first of all, like we're all fans. We're all biased. We all have our issues. If you have a, you know, Tommy's just a guy like you guys. He just feels differently. And most importantly, it makes for fun discussion. I'm a pro LeBron guy. So it leads to more debate. It's no fun to just have someone come on here and agree with me on everything. And most importantly, it's not that serious. It's ba- It's not that serious. It's basketball discussion. And so Tommy's going to come on. We're going to disagree on some stuff. It's going to be fun. If, if Tommy says something that is, is unfair and that you disagree with, chances are I'm going to be there to advocate for whatever your side of, of that debate is. So uh, it should be fun. Like I said, Friday, 11 a.m. Thanks again, as always, for your guys' support. I really, really, truly appreciate it. If you haven't done so yet, you know, subscribe. Uh, if you could write a review, if you could drop a rating for me, it would mean a lot to me. Um, but as usual, I appreciate your guys' support, and I'll see you guys on Friday.